Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sussingham. It might be one of the state's best kept secrets, but Florida winemaking is a billion dollar industry. There are dozens of wineries across the state employing nearly 100,000 people with university research departments dedicated to viticulture. How can this hot, humid, fungus-friendly state support successful wine production? Here with us to discuss Florida wines, Vince Shook is president of Florida Orange Groves Winery, a tropical berry and citrus winery. Chuck Hallweg is a non-commercial hobbyist grape grower and winemaker. And Gina Birch is host of Grape Minds podcast from WGCU, the NPR member station in Fort Myers. Vince, Chuck, Gina, thanks for being here. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having us. I want to start off with the history of winemaking because when I was getting ready for this show, I was very surprised to learn about the history of Florida winemaking, which I thought would have been just, you know, started in the last couple decades. But who wants to who wants to tell us about that? Well, you know, it goes back to when the Spaniards came. You know, they brought the grapes and I've talked to different people and I've been doing stories about Florida wine. They say Florida was one of the first states in the in the nation to grow grapes. I heard that it is the cradle of winemaking for the country, that the French Huguenots, this yes. is, so I've read a couple different reports of it. The French Huguenots, back in the 16th the, century. The French Huguenots at Fort Caroline in 1564 was right. the first documented. Isn't that amazing? It's, it's amazing. Of course, those grapes didn't work. <laughs> you know, the, the vines that they brought because you of what you mentioned, the humidity, the uh, the climate. And uh, so that's when they started switching and, and they found the muscadines, the, the gro- grapes that were native to Florida. Um, I think somebody, a, a British admiral, came and reported that they had something like 1,200 gallons of wine. They were starving to death, mm-hmm. but they had but all they that wine. wine. Right? Uh, so yeah. Vince? Yeah. Uh, one of the, the good things about the muscadine variety here in Florida is that it has resistance to what's called Pierce's disease. Mm-hmm. And Pierce's disease is simply a bacteria that gets inside the the, the veins, uh, the vines, multiplies, and, and, and it strangles the flow of uh, nutrients and water to the vine. Fortunately, muscadines have a resistance to that. The vinifera, you know, like your Merlots, your Chardonnays, uh, things like that, they do not have a resistance to that. So that's why we can't grow vinifera here in Florida. So that is the species of grape that all the traditional Bordeaux, Pinot Noir, all the diff- things that you might have heard of, that comes from the species vinifera? Yes, that's this the ca- the classification as opposed to like our muscadine variety here okay. in Florida. So. so it's a completely different species. It's native to Florida Correct. and it loves the heat and the humidity. It's kind of interesting because some of the people that I've talked to in the different universities that are doing the studies on trying to get the gene for resistance to uh, be placed into the Merlots and the Chardonnays and things like that. So you say, well, why or is, is there so much research in Florida on that? And they said, well, here we have the best bugs in the world. We have the highest humidity. We have the most fungus. And our weeds, they're just absolutely fantastic. So if they can <laughs> design a plant that's going to survive and flourish in that environment, they've pretty much got it licked. 
It's sturdy. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so. Chuck, talk about the muscadine grapes. Now, you're a grape grower. What are you growing? We're a hobbyist grape grower, and actually in Newport Ritchie, and we're growing three different cultivars. I have uh, two whites and a red, cultivar obviously being a species. Cultivar and of muscadine? Of muscadine grapes. Okay. So one of our cultivars is a Carlos, which is a white wine, which when it's made properly is much like a Chardonnay, wow. except it has that kind of musky pop to it. That's very um, distinct. Yeah. They're very distinct. And then we have a, a noble, uh, which is a Somalo red berry, which we use a lot of times for our grape sangria. Makes a great sangria wine. I'm sure Vince knows that. And uh, <laughs> I admire Vince and his operation. He does a lot of things with muscadine grapes most growers don't. So um, my aspect from a hobbyist is I'm not financially in, involved in it to the point that I can't just play with my grapes. So we do a lot of blending. We do a lot of, if I have some new cultivars I find coming up, I still have room to put more rows in. I'll put a few plants in to see what happens. University of Florida brought the delicious to market, what, seven years ago, I believe. Dr. Dennis Gray from the University of Florida Viticulture bred that in a popka. And uh, he gave a presentation, which Vince and I heard at the Florida Grape Growers Association annual conference. And I said, uh, Dr. Gray, how did you get the name delicious for that grape? <laughs> and when you know, he said, well, everybody who had tried them said they were delicious, so it stuck. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's that kind of thing that runs our industry. It's kind of a seat of your pants, a tremendous amount of science behind it, considering it took him almost 15 years to bring that great variety or that great cultivar to market. Now, they're, they're working on it at the University of Florida, as you mentioned. Also, Florida A&M University has a viticulture department. Mm-hmm. Um, they're having a grape harvest festival coming up. You know, there's a lot of research going on to make the grapes, I guess, more suitable for Florida and good. Now, there's a difference between a good tasting grape and a good winemaking grape, isn't mm-hmm. there, Vince? Yes, and that's what uh, a lot of this research is directed towards, is to find the best varieties and do the, uh, the most experiments to develop those varieties that will have the characteristics to make the best wine. So a lot of that research is funded by the Viticulture Advisory Council for the state of Florida. And, um, is that the uh, Department of Agriculture? Yes, the Florida Department okay. of Agriculture and Consumer Services, right. The different varieties that, uh, like uh, Chuck referred to, that are now coming out onto the market is a direct result of a lot of that research. So that's kind of exciting. So what's the difference between a hobbyist, Chuck, and a commercial grower? Because, Chuck, you say you're a hobbyist, but it sounds like you're pretty serious. Big difference. Uh, the difference is we're not licensed. It's a night and day thing. Licensing requires a lot of oversight by the TTB, Tax Tobacco Bureau. Uh, a lot of compliance goes with that. We do not sell it. We make just enough for our personal consumption and, and friends who, who no, you visit don't us. Sell. Correct. Gina, what about Florida wine? How do we judge the quality? Are there competitions? Are there awards that are given to Florida wine where they would be maybe compared to each other rather than compared to a Napa Valley winery or a New York state winery? Yeah, you know, most all states have some type of competition. Now, they do it a lot at the state fairs, and, and we do have that type of competition here in the state of Florida. And I think what makes Florida also unique is, besides the grapes, it's the tropical fruit wines. So then you're talking about a whole other category of wine 
wines and how they're made and the quality and perception. I think Florida nationally and even within our own borders, uh, people have a perception that there's not any good wine. It's all kiwi or it's all... Uh, and that doesn't mean that the kiwi's not good. It's just not grapes. So people are looking at it differently, and, and it's apples and oranges. You know, it's, it's kiwi and grapes. It's not mm-hmm. the same. It, it requires a change in your mindset. Right. You know, I can see how a lot of wine connoisseurs would look down their nose at a mango wine or an a- avocado wine I've heard of. They do make that in Miami. They make that in mm-hmm. Miami. So you could see how a sommelier <laughs> in a fine French restaurant might say, we would never carry a sweet avocado wine. But it does require a different mindset because it's apple and oranges. Vince, I want you to talk about, because you guys at Florida Orange Grove's winery, mm-hmm. you make wine out of tropical fruit. Yes, we make 43 different kinds of uh, different tropical citrus and berry wines I there. want you to justify that for me. Uh, let's start way back uh, about 35 years ago, and there was a study that came out in the Wall Street Journal, and it was the first study on all wine consumption in the United States. At that time, 11% of the people in the United States consumed all the wine that was sold. 40% of the population said they had tried wine, but they were not drinking it, and the rest of the people did not drink you know, alcoholic beverages. What caught our eye in that study, and we were in the citrus business at the time, squeezing the different juices and everything. Mm-hmm. I hadn't been out of college too long, so we were still trying to make uh, wine out of the different citrus juices as we did in our dorm rooms. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that study was interesting because they went back to the 40% sample that said they had tried wine and they weren't drinking it. And they asked them one simple question, why aren't you drinking it? Number one answer, it does not taste like what it is made out of. Number two... Didn't taste like a grape to them. Exactly. Number two, it wasn't sweet enough. Number three, we don't taste like the taste of alcohol. So if you look at that as an entrepreneur and you say, well, my goodness, that is a potential market that is four times as big as the existing wine market in the United States, therein lies the appeal for the type of wine that we are making. So this has been quite an evolution for us. It's been, you know, 30 years in the making to get where we are today in the tropicals uh, side of the variety production especially. But we always like to say when we're pitching our wines for sale to, you know, whether it be restaurants or whatever, that mindset that you're talking about is the hardest thing to get over. Okay. So we always say that, look, uh, our wines will bring flavor and style characteristics to your meals that regular grape wine can never hope to accomplish. So you pair them with the right foods and you're off to the races. When I give my talks at Disney, because we're a good partner with Disney, One of the things I uh, talk about is we make a cranberry wine. I said, now, what are you going to pair that with? We have Thanksgiving coming up, turkey, mashed potatoes, and gravy, and cranberry wine. And there isn't a person in the audience that doesn't look left or right and go like, oh, yeah, that does sound good. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're after. We're after that market. How much fruit do you need to make the wine? The rule of thumb, and it varies up and down depending on which type of fruit that we're making, but uh, generally it goes 10 pounds. 10 pounds for one bottle, for one of, bottle wa- right. of wine. Yeah. Is that expensive or does it b- depend on the fruit? It is. And that's one of the problems that we have is that grapes basically are, you know, one of the least expensive things to make wine out of. Really? When you go to red raspberries, blackberries, mangoes, 
key limes, things like that. You have a whole different production process that's involved in getting the juice, like for example, mangoes. I mean, you've got to put them, or how we used to do it, uh, you put them in a commercial potato pillar, rough up the skins on the outside, then you have to enzyme the, the meat of the fruit off the stone. You have to get those stones out of there. It's quite a process. So, And mangoes are a lot more expensive than grapes are. So, But you can't charge a lot for mango wine. People won't pay it. I mean, one reason I think these are attractive wines, Gina, right, is because they're People would see them, a fruit wine, as an affordable wine. Uh, Typically, yes. And, you know, one of the things that makes some of the wines made from grapes out of Napa expensive is, as you pointed, it's not the fruit, it's the real estate. It's what they're paying in mortgage for that really nice piece of property that's high up on the mountain that Mm. has all of this history and these high ratings. So they're able to charge $150 for this great Napa cab when really, you know, if those same grapes and that same style was somewhere else, it might be a $20 bottle of wine. So it is, there is disparity there as well. It's not just with like the mangoes uh, versus the other fruit. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's with the industry in general. That's interesting. So Chuck, you are using grapes. You know, have you ever thought about using fruit or do you ever? You know, hobby. the grapes are enough of a challenge. Uh, <laughs> the uh, the fruit is a challenge. Uh, you know, I was listening to Vince on how much it takes to make a bottle of wine. Our rule of thumb is 12 to 14 pounds of uh, muscadine grapes per gallon of wine. A gallon makes five bottles of wine. So there's the price comparison. It's a lot less expensive for us. Chuck, you are retired. You're a retired financial wealth advisor. Correct. So how much have you put into this, all this winemaking equipment? How much would it set somebody back to, to start making wine? You mean to start a vineyard and then buy the equipment? You've got the whole thing, don't you? Yeah. You've got the vineyard and the equipment. Correct. Yeah. Um, the bottling and everything? You have the We do everything, wine. yeah. Okay. In fact, my wife is our packaging manager. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> see I, our I, labels. Yeah, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask an intrusive question. But, like, yeah, how, how much do you think you have invested in, in all of your oh, winemaking? Oh, gosh, I don't know. It's under $10,000 probably. Really? Yeah. With the acreage and the grapes? And well, no, the, the acreage is different. Yeah, the acreage okay. adds another 60, 70 to it. Probably. Right. Yeah. But you love seeing the grapes out there. I do. They're my babies. How many acres do you have in grapes? We just have one. One acre. And it makes all those, they're very prolific then, muscadine. They are, yeah. Okay. And then what about you, Vince? How many acres and what do you, do you have groves yourself or do you buy the fruit? How do you work it? For most of our uh, wines that we make, we actually purchase the fruit. So there's no way that we can have uh, you don't have to have mango, mango groves, groves and okay. key lime groves and things like that. Mm-hmm. So we work with producers that are willing to squeeze the juice uh, to our specifications. So we do have some land that uh, we lease for muscadine vineyards that uh, uh, get us qualified as a Florida farm winery. So we have that that we deal with. But most of the juices that we're getting now that we used to squeeze on site. We're big enough now that we can have specifications and enough volume that we can go to outside producers and have them provide the juice to us. So you don't have your own orange groves anymore then? No, we do not. And you see that segmentation coming like out in California a lot. Everything is being broken up. You'll have the people that actually grow the grapes, the vineyard owners. Then you'll have the uh, actual wineries that are making the wine. And then you'll have the distribution networks of the people that are selling the wine. So they're breaking it up. It's a huge undertaking, as I'm sure Chuck will tell you, to try to do all three or four aspects of the operation. Is that new, Gina? Because I always thought, thinking of California wineries or even even New York State, I always pictured 
a vast, you know, vast acreage of, of vineyards and then the winery right there that makes the wines. Is that not well, how it is anymore? There still is a lot of that. There's still some family-owned wines, but, you know, with the popularity and the clout and the, the people from Silicon Valley who now have extra money and they don't know what to do with it, and they want to go buy a vineyard or, or buy some land, and, and then they hire people to do all the work for them. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you go over to some place like Spain, there are still a lot of family-owned. They It's been in the family for a long time. They own the land. They own the grapes. They own the equipment. They own everything. So that's why some of those wines are going to be a little lower price doesn't necessarily mean that they're any less value. It just means that they don't have to spend all that money on hiring everybody and sourcing everything out. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing I saw was there was wineries in Florida that actually didn't even use Florida produce. They they just yeah. brought juice in I from think elsewhere. Lake Ridge might be one of those. They do have a lot of acreage. They do grow a lot of grapes. They're in Claremont. The winemaker there is the one who worked with the University of Florida to come up with a new grape, the Blanc de Bois. Mm -hmm. And it's also being grown in Texas now. They make a sparkling wine out of that. Um, But they've got this beautiful rolling property, rolling hills, and it used to be orange groves, too. Mm -hmm. And so they make, they use a lot of the hybrid grapes (coughs) that, you know, Vince and Chuck were talking about. But they also, they have Chardonnay and they have Merlot. So they're sourcing those grapes and they're bringing them in. I don't know if they're pressed or how they're brought in, if they're pressed in California and, and the juice is shipped. A lot of times that's done. And then they do the fermenting and the blending and everything on property. So it can still say bottled in Florida or Florida wine, even though the grapes weren't grown on property. Mm-hmm. So that happens a lot. That happens um, all over the place. Too. I would think as a tourist, that's not why you would go to a Florida winery is to drink grapes made from California. I think it supplements what they do. It must supplement it. So and maybe some people only will accept something like a mm-hmm. Chardonnay and not and not a kiwi or a key lime wine. Mm-hmm. Or if they have a specific taste, I mean it's all it's all relative, right? It's it's all in the best wine is the wine that you like. If you like sweet wine, great. If someone doesn't like sweet wine and they go to one of these wineries, then they have an option. They've got something else that they can drink and, and purchase and help support our economy. <laughs> and that's why we make, like we say, 43 different kinds because there's, you're right, people do have certain things that they like, certain tastes that they like. So you try to offer something for everybody. But, you know, there's a lot of different tastes out there. You don't hit everybody's palate, you know. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about how you feel. You, you mentioned restaurants briefly, Vince, and I, there must be some frustration with trying to get your wines accepted by restaurants, local restaurants, Florida restaurants, who kind of, you know, they, they look down on Florida wines and they won't, they won't sell them. How do you handle that? Well, we have a lot of restaurant change now in Florida that, uh, in particular, our tropicals appeal to. Okay. But the, the big problem is not that they don't like the wines or that they look down on them. The, the problem is the pricing, and we cannot meet their price points when it comes to purchasing inexpensive uh, wines from whether they're coming in from Chile or wherever, you know. So the globalization has affected the industry here in Florida from that standpoint, uh, the competition, a lot of other factors that go into uh, trying to make Florida wine uh, economically viable, you know. Do you all ever, I I understand that, but do you all ever try to talk to sommeliers from, say, you know, Burns, Steakhouse, which Mm -hmm. has 500,000 bottles of wine, whatever it is, Um, but they won't carry Florida wine. That's, yeah, you're going to find the mindset really entrenched in um, high-end restaurants like that. 
Go now, ahead, Gina. and I have to interrupt briefly because I was at a higher-end restaurant in Marco Island at the JW Marriott recently, and the restaurant was called Ario, and the sommelier was really interested and in tune with trying to find wines that weren't on everybody's list. She didn't want the Camus or the uh, uh, some of the other big wines that people know all the time and they that are comfortable and they can go and order. She had two Florida wines on there. They were both from Lake Ridge. She was a, there was a red and a white. Really? The red was a cab. So this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Are there any local grapes or indigenous grapes or hybrid grapes that are blended in there? I don't know. I did not get to read the back of the bottle. I did try a, one of the whites, and it did have muscadine in it. And she served it with a key lime pie for dessert. Perfect. So it it, it went it went perfectly. Mm-hmm. You know what? I could definitely taste the muskiness from the muscadine and then it, also some of the tropical flavors. And it was seamless. So something like that, it's just getting the right buyer to taste it and, and get it and then getting them to train their staff to try to serve it and turn the diners on to it. Otherwise, it's just going to sit there and collect dust. Mm-hmm. So it's a big task. Right, Gina. And there's something just about the experience right. of trying a Florida wine, right? I mean, you're looking for something different. It's a, even a, a souvenir mm-hmm. or it's a feeling of the place where you are or I, it can, even a funny label. I think that's that's big right now. And you look at marketing and the millennials and that's what they're all looking for. They want the place. They want the story. They want something that their mom and dads aren't going to be drinking and haven't consumed. And they want to be the first one to post the, the pictures on Instagram. So all their friends. So if they go down to the, the, the Snebleys in, in Miami and they're sitting under a tiki hut drinking an avocado and mango wine, this is awesome. Instagrammable. Right. But are they going to buy a case and ship it home? Are they going to, if they see it in Publix or one of the supermarkets, buy a bunch of it? Or is it just that experience? And is that experience enough? You know, are you selling enough wine to make it enough? Uh, that's that's a conundrum that the gentleman would probably be able to comment more on. It is a conundrum. And um, you touched on something that really uh, kind of uh, sets off a spark in me, and that's uh, being able to ship the wine home. Okay. Mm-hmm. One of the huge problems that the wine industry here in Florida and other states mm-hmm. has is the regulatory environment. I'm not sure whether most people are aware of it, but Amazon Wine shut down December 31st, 2017. And the reason they shut down is because of all the problems that um, they experience that we do as a small winery. You have to have licenses now to ship into all the other different states. Okay, and you have to pay excise tax and uh, uh, sales tax and any other kind of tax and gallon taxes and keep all the records and send reports in every month to all these states with names and addresses of people that you sent to, how much they bought and all this kind of stuff. So those regulations have been put in place by the large distributors mainly to keep business flowing through them, the product flowing through them on the way to the consumers. But in the case of Amazon Wine, you have the smaller wineries that signed up for the program, but there were so few that could comply with the regulatory uh, problems with all the different states that that is a program that failed. And that is one of the big pressures that we have trying to um, figure out how to get our product to people once they've come, tasted it here in Florida, want it once they get home. It's, it's a big problem. Well, yeah, because shipping a case home is what people want to do exactly. if they like it. So you aren't able to do that? That's Is that a problem for you? Or we're, do you we have are to hire licensed. people to do all those all that regulatory 
you're stuff. looking you're looking at the guy who handles <laughs> it for our place and we have 15 states that we're licensed to ship into and we keep an eye on um, those sales each year to see whether all the license fees on top of all the taxes and everything make it worthwhile to continue to offer shipment into those states so it's a constant problem and it's a lot of work so spend a lot of weekends uh, doing those things while the bureaucrats are home for the weekend mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So I wanted to ask you, Chuck, you say that you work the harvest um, and crush for Strong Tower Winery and Vineyard. What, what do you mean you work the harvest? What, is, what are you Correct. doing? Well, working the harvest, we have a harvester machine that goes down the rows of the grapes with a harvest crew. That It shakes the grapes off the vines. They go through a conveyor up into a bin. They take the trucks up to the processing area, and if three of us then run that processing area, we then shovel those or we'll convey those into a, what's known as a crusher. What that does, and the stemmer, it, it just pops the skin of the grape. It doesn't completely crush it to where you've crushed the seeds and exposed the grape to more tannins than you should. Um, that, it then creates what we call the must. And then we move that by pumps into 250 and 400 and 500-gallon tanks. So we get the first load done, and by the time we're through with that, here comes the next load of bins. There are almost 2,000-pound bins of grapes. So it's a, we call it a half-day venture, dawn to dusk, and much later than that. What's the must? Is that the skin? The must is the, is the pulpy liquid that comes after you crush the grapes. Okay. That's All what right. we ferment. And then from the must, then you go eventually press the wine out after you're through your fermentation process. I see it. To make it be a good winemaker, you need to understand what you're doing with the grape. And and that whole crush process is how you start it, and the quality of your grapes determines how your wine's going to turn out. Vince, does the process for making a wine from tropical fruit, mm-hmm. does that <clears throat> differ a lot from the process of making it from grapes? Uh, in the preparation of the juice, yes. But, you know, you're still trying to get the juice for the fermentation process. Like I say, it did take us a long time to learn how to make uh, key lime wine from 100% key lime juice. All our tropicals and citrus and berry wines are made 100% from the juice that's indicated by the label. So they all do taste like what they're made out of, which was... That was important to you. That was very important. One thing I wanted to mention, Gina, is when I looked at the map of the Florida wineries... um, you're in St. Petersburg, right, mm-hmm. Vince? Yes. But a, a, a lot of them, I'd say the majority of them, are in really small towns <coughs> and rural areas. And they've got to be helping the economy of whatever tiny little town that they are in. I think that they, they're they sort of a, a rural economic driver that, that we hadn't thought about. Right. When you talk about agro-tourism, how big that's getting in the state, you know, with people having their small farms and, and having activities for for families and, and people to visit and get those organic and, and locally grown produces. I think that these local wineries, these Florida wineries, just fit perfectly into that. And they're definitely off the beaten track. Right. <laughs> A lot of them. Do you ever go around and try it, Vince? Do you ever check out your competition or go around to other wineries? And- uh, yes, for a, you know many years, of course, we've been members of the Florida Wine and Grape Growers Association. I used to be their treasurer. and um, So, yes, I got to meet everybody at the annual conference, and then we do go around and visit. And being on the state's Viticulture Advisory Council, we have opportunity to come in contact with uh, a lot of them. So. Mm-hmm. Vince Shook is president of Florida Orange Groves Winery. Chuck Holweg is a hobbyist grape grower and winemaker. And Gina Birch is host of Great Minds podcast from WGCU. 
Thank you all so much. This has been so much fun. A good time. Thank Thank you you for asking. Time has flown by. Very enjoyable. You can tweet us at Florida Matters and know that Florida Matters is available as a podcast. You can search for it wherever you get your podcasts. Florida Matters is a production of WUSF Public Media. The engineer is Richard Jimenez. The show is produced by Stephanie Colombini and Alia Colon. I'm Robin Sussingham. Thanks for listening.